uh, in trying to come up with scripture for us to go through. As a family, Brittany and I have been going through the book of Judges, and in the morning, um, I've been going through, I've read through the book of Ruth, so if you've been doing the Robert Murray McShane reading plan, you may have gone through the book of Ruth recently as well. Um, so I thought a good intersection between the two, the book of Judges, the story of, of that period of, of Israel's history where the, where the judges ruled, um, the book of Ruth takes place in that time period. It is great um, zooming in of, of one of the stories of that period of Israel's history. So I thought that it would be helpful and encouraging to us to go through um, the first chapter of the book of Ruth. And, and hopefully if um, we have the opportunity, maybe we can go through more at a later date. But for today, uh, we're just going to kind of work through the, the beginning parts of, of Ruth um, and talk about that and see how we may be encouraged by that. So as we get started, let's go ahead and read the first chapter of Ruth. So I'm going to read the whole chapter. Uh, it's Ruth chapter 1 after, after the book of Judges. So Ruth chapter 1. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land, and a man of Bethlehem and Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech, and the name of his wife Naomi, and the names of his two sons were Malon and Chilion. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem and Judah. They went into the country of Moab and remained there. But Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died, and she was left without her two sons. These took Moabite wives. The name of the one was Orpah, and the name of the other, Ruth. They lived there about ten years, and both Melon and Chilion died, so that the woman was left without her two sons and her husband. Then she arose with her daughters-in-law to return from the country of Moab, for she had heard in the fields of Moab that the Lord had visited his people and given them food. So she, so she set out from the place where she was with her two daughters-in-law, and they went on the way to return to the land of Judah. But Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, Go, return each of you to her mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly with you as, he, as you have dealt with the dead and with me. The Lord grant that you may find rest, each of you, in the house of her husband. Then she kissed them, and they lifted up their voices and wept. And they said to her, No, we will return with you to your people. But Naomi said, Turn back, my daughters. Why will you go with me? Have I yet sons in my womb that they may become your husbands? Turn back, my daughters. Go your way, for I am too old to have a husband. If I should say I have hope, even if I should have a husband this night and should bear sons, would you therefore wait till they were grown? Would you therefore refrain from marrying? No, my daughters, for it is exceedingly bitter to me for your sake that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. Then they lifted up their voices and wept again, and Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her. And she said, See, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. But Ruth said, Do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go, and where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people, and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die, and there will I be buried. May the Lord do so to me, and more also, if anything but death parts me from you. And when Naomi saw that she was determined to go with her, she said no more. So the two of them went on until they came to Bethlehem. And when they came to Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. And the women said, Is this Naomi? She said to them, Do not call me Naomi, call me Mara, for the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went away full, and the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi, when the Lord has testified against me, and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me? So Naomi returned, and Ruth the Moabite, her daughter-in-law, with her, who returned from the country of Moab, and they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of barley harvest. Okay. So just a few notes. Um, that we want to focus on a couple of the different main themes in Ruth that, that hopefully we're going to start to see here in the first chapter that we're going to um, 
you can trace throughout the rest of the book of Ruth, but I think are set up really well for us, even here in the first chapter. Uh, specifically in this first chapter, the idea of emptiness to fullness. So uh, as we're going to go through the first five verses where we see um, Naomi and the death of her, of her two sons and her husband, uh, this, this great emptiness that Naomi has. Uh, and then we get to trace throughout the rest of the book of Ruth how the Lord takes her emptiness and makes it fullness. We get to see really great and powerful examples of God's sovereignty, we could see rest, faith, the cost of disobedience. Again, another um, one of the themes that I think is most strongly seen here in this first chapter, the cost of disobedience, and then redemption, which we don't see as strongly in this chapter, but um, is what we're kind of working towards. So first off, just to kind of work through line by line, section by section, um, we start with, in, in verse 1, in the days when the judges ruled. So, we're in the era of the judges. We're in a portion of Israel's history between the Exodus, so Moses leading the people out of the promised land, Joshua leading them, or sorry, leading, Moses leading his people out of Egypt, um, and then Joshua leading the people into the promised land, and then upon the death of Joshua, we see the beginning of, of the period of the judges, ending with, uh, with the coronation of Saul, the beginning of the period of the kings. So Moses had died, Joshua had led his people into the promised land, and the time of the judges begins. So what was this period in Israel's history like? What was it known for? Um, if you've read through the book of Judges before, um, there's this repeated theme of, of Israel's unfaithfulness, their idolatry, their going after the gods of, of the other nations. If we go to Judges chapter 2, verses 11 through 15, Judges chapter 2, 11 through 15, it says, And the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and served the Baals, and they abandoned the Lord, the God of their fathers, who had brought them out of the land of Egypt. They went after other gods from among the gods of the people who were around them and bowed down to them, and they provoked the Lord to anger. They abandoned the Lord and served the Baals and the Asheroth, so the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel. And he gave them over to plunderers who plundered them, and he sold them into the hand of their surrounding enemies, so that they could no longer withstand their enemies. Whenever they marched out, the hand of the Lord was against them for harm, as the Lord had warned, and as the Lord had sworn to them, and they were in terrible distress." So we see here in, in Judges chapter 2, so right here in the beginning of, of the book of Judges, right after Joshua's death, as soon as this period of, of Israel's history begins, that they abandoned the Lord, the God of their fathers, who, who had brought them out of the land of Egypt. The Exodus was not that long ago. They had already forgotten God's faithfulness. They had abandoned the Lord and turned to, turned to other gods. They went after other gods from among the gods of the people and bowed down to them. So this is a repeated theme of, of Israel's idolatry, of Israel's turning from the Lord their God, the God who was faithful to them, who led them out of Egypt, uh, and turning towards other gods. So that's Judges chapter 2, the very beginning of the book, and we see by the end of the book, it hasn't gotten any better. Um, in fact, if you've read through the book of Judges, it, it just goes from bad to worse. Um, if you read Judges chapter 21, verse 25, the very last verse of the book of Judges, which is the verse preceding, at least in our Bibles, the verse preceding Ruth, um, the very last verse before Ruth, we see, in those days there was no king in Israel, everyone did what was right in his own eyes. So a great period of, of moral relativism in Israel, um, leaving behind the law, leaving behind God, leaving behind the things that, um, that they were supposed to have been in the promised land, God's covenant people, leaving that all behind and being unfaithful to the Lord. But there's still hope in the book of Judges. Um, that's, what, that's the purpose of the Judges. We see um, in the first judge, Othniel, uh, it says, 
And the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, which we've, we've talked about. They, they forgot the Lord their God, served the Baals and the Asheroth. But it does say that um, the people of Israel cried out to the Lord, and the Lord raised up a deliverer for the people of Israel who saved them, Othniel the son of Canaz. So that's in, that's in Judges chapter 3. So that very first um, judge, that even though the people were unfaithful to God, even though um, his hand was against them because of their unfaithfulness, when they cried out to him, he still heard their cries and he was still faithful to them. So we're, when we start the book of Ruth, we're against a backdrop of, of a time of, of intense idolatry, moral relativism, uh, just general chaos and um, sinfulness in Israel's history. And then we read, as we go on, that there was a famine in the land. So um, it doesn't expressly tell us what the reason or um, what the purpose, what, what, what precipitated, brought about uh, the famine in the land. But we may be able to assume, and, and maybe if it may have been clear to the original readers of this, uh, it might have been a result of, of Israel's covenant unfaithfulness. We read um, in Deuteronomy chapter 28. Let me get there. Deuteronomy 28. Um, I'll read verses 15 through 19. It says, But if you will not obey the voice of the Lord your God, or be careful to do all his commandments and his statutes that I command you today, then all these curses shall come upon you and overtake you. Cursed shall you be in the city, and cursed shall you be in the field. Cursed shall be your basket and your kneading bowl. Cursed shall be the fruit of your womb and the fruit of your ground, the increase of your herds and the young of your flock. Cursed shall you be when you come in, and cursed shall you be when you go out. So we clearly see that, that the Lord warns them that if you will be unfaithful to me, if you, don't do, uh, if you don't obey the voice of the Lord your God, if you don't follow my commandments and my statutes, that, that famine is a result of that, that, that it's very possible that, that the Lord will uh, curse them with famine. It's, it's something he warns them about. Uh, there in Deuteronomy chapter 28, we also see that in Leviticus 26. So uh, whether we, again, the, the author, the Holy Spirit through the author of Ruth doesn't explicitly tell us that the famine was due to unfaithfulness or, or due to sin. But um, we read in, in Exodus 3 that the, that the promised land should have been a land flowing with, with milk and honey. It should have been a land that was prosperous and fruitful, um, and yet it wasn't. So whether we say it was a result of, of, of Israel's covenant unfaithfulness in the time of the judges or not, we can see that things are clearly not the way that they should be. Things were not as, as they ought to be. Um, so as we're building this backdrop building this backdrop of, of a time of Israel's history, um, a time of great trial uh, and strife for, for God's people. So then we go on. It says, um, And a man of Bethlehem in Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. And this, um, just a brief note, uh, it says a man of Bethlehem in Judah. So Bethlehem in the, in the Hebrew just means house of bread. So it's, it's ironic, and it kind of intensifies again just the tragic nature of the beginning of the book of Ruth, that not only was the promised land, the land flowing with milk and honey, famished, without food, we also see that Bethlehem, the house of bread, is without bread. There is no bread in the house of bread. There is famine. Uh, there is a lack of, of food. So the ironic name for Bethlehem intensifies the tone of tragic deviation from idealized covenant life in the land. So this, uh, this ideal of what covenant life in the promised land would look like has not, been, has not been fulfilled. It's not the way that things ought to be. So then we see, again, I already, I already read this a little bit. It says that a man in Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab. He and his wife and his two sons. I'll go ahead and read verse 2. 
The name of the man was Elimelech, and the name of his wife, Naomi, and the names of his two sons were Malon and Chilion. So I think it's important that we, um, that we understand that Elimelech um, means God is my king. So names have a really big significance in the book of Ruth as you go through. Uh, we'll talk a little bit about their names um, as we go through. But Elimelech means God is my king. And yet we see, um, again, the, the, the Holy Spirit through, through the author of Ruth doesn't explicitly tell us that, that him moving his family to Moab was, was a sinful action or was something that we should condemn him for. But again, it's something that we look at and we say, things are not moving in the direction that they ought to be moving in. Things are not the way that they should be. Moab was a pagan nation uh, that had oppressed Israel. You read earlier in Judges, um, in the third chapter. And again, this, we know this took place in the time of the Judges. We don't know exactly when, but it probably happened after um, this, uh, this period in Judges chapter 3. We read in, um, again, Judges chapter 3, verses 12 through 14. And the people of Israel, again, did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. And the Lord strengthened Eglon, the king of Moab, against Israel, because they had done what was evil in the sight of the Lord. He gathered to himself the Ammonites and the Amalekites and went and defeated Israel. And they took possession of the city of Palms. And the people of Israel served Eglon, the king of Moab, 18 years. So um, at this point, it probably hadn't been too long of a time since they'd just been oppressed by Moab that um, Moab, Eglon, the king of Moab, had oppressed them. And again, we read of, that's where we read of Ehud, God raising up Ehud to, to kill the king of Moab and, and, and deliver God's people out of his hand. Um, we read as well in Numbers chapter 25, uh, another instance in which the people of, of Israel um, are, are led away from the God, from their God, led away from Yahweh by uh, the people of Moab. So this is Numbers chapter 25. Verses 1 through 5 says, while Israel, whoops, excuse me, while Israel lived in Shittim, the people began to whore with the daughters of Moab. They invited the people to the sacrifices of their gods, and the people ate and bowed down to their gods. So Israel yoked himself to Baal of Peor, and the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel. And the Lord said to Moses, take all the chiefs of the people and hang them in the sun before the Lord, that the fierce anger of the Lord may turn away from Israel and Moses said to the judges of Israel, each of you kill those of his men who have yoked themselves to Baal of Peor. So we read that they began to whore with the daughters of Moab. Baal of Peor is one of Moab's gods. So we read throughout the whole Old Testament, um, through most of the Old Testament, that, that Moab is not, um, not really a good place. It's a place of pagan worship. Uh, we even read, if we, if we remember in, in Genesis 19, the, the beginning of, of the nation of Moab through the destruction of, of Sodom and Gomorrah. Lot's two daughters think that all the men in the world are gone because they've all been killed in Sodom and Gomorrah. They have an incestuous relationship with their father, and through that is the birth of Moab. So even from the very beginning, we see that Moab is not a place that, that God's people probably should be just wandering into and going to. Again, uh, go, leaving the promised land, the land flowing with milk and honey to go to to go to a pagan nation to look for food. Okay, and we get this idea that, that things are not as they ought to be. Um, and again, I don't want to go beyond the bounds of what the scriptures tell us here, but I do think it, it might be helpful um, to understand um, kind of what some of the, I'm going to have a couple quotes here from some different commentators on kind of how they take um, his move to, to Moab. So the Reformation Study Bible says, he does not trust God, his king, to provide for him in the promised land, and so he moves to a pagan land where he dies. Um, John, John Currid says, So this Israelite man left his ancestral lands allotted to him by the Lord and went to Moab to work under pagan authority. He therefore appears to have put his family in harm's way. 
Was it the right thing to do? One point to consider is the fact that not everyone reacted to the famine by resorting to sojourning. Apparently many, like Boaz, remained in the land of promise. Um, so we can see, again, whether we want to full-on condemn Elimelech, which the, the scripture doesn't do, so it may not be the wisest thing to do, we should still see that, uh, as we remember in, in the, at the end of Judges, that there was no king in the land. That Elimelech, whose name means God is my king, um, it says at the end of Judges that there was no king in the land and everyone did what was right in their own eyes. So it seems as though whether we want to say that what Elimelech did was right or wrong, that he, he seems to have clearly done what was right in his own eyes. He did what he thought would be best to provide for his family, even if what we know from the rest of Scripture, it probably wasn't the best thing to do. It was probably right in his own eyes. Um, but again, we're moving in the wrong direction. We're not going towards the, towards the direction of what, what the Scripture says, the promised land, um, should look like. We're moving away from that. Uh, I like what Matthew Henry has to say too. It says, Elimelech's care to provide for his family and his taking his wife and children with him were without doubt commendable. So we have to, we can commend Elimelech for, for that at least, that you could at least say on the face of things he was seeking to provide for his family. Um, but yet, this didn't give him the right to run away. Uh, as the people in Bethlehem survived. We read that there were still people living in Bethlehem. It seems as though Bethlehem made it through the famine okay. Uh, that if all the people of Israel did what he did, there would be no promised land left. There would be no people left in the promised land. So, um, again, whether we, we wanna, whatever we want to say about Elimelech, it seems as though he did what was right in his own eyes and, and we're moving away from, from what we should be walking towards, which is um, the, the fruitfulness and, uh, and God's provision for his people in the promised land. So Elimelech appears to be a direct example of the issues of his time. Uh, there were people without a king, and though his name meant God is my king, he seemed to act in some ways in, in opposition to that truth. He was his own, his own leader. He, he did what was right in his own eyes. Um, so as we continue forward, we, we've already read it. Um, I mean, we see, that, we see that him and his sons died. Again, do we see that as uh, God's condemnation against his choice? Not necessarily. Again, the, the author of Scripture doesn't tell us that. So we can't, I think it would be wrong of us to make that, to make that assumption, but yet, um, I like that, that John Curid says that he seems as though he, he, puts, his ham, he puts his family in harm's way. Um, that through this, through this trip to Moab, disaster comes upon his family for one reason or another. We know it was for God's good purpose, um, but it probably would not be wise to go much past that other than to see again that the, what God had, had planned for the promised land was not coming to fruition. Um, and, and we could say that at least part of that was more than likely due to to Israel's sin corporately um, through, the, through this difficult uh, and sinful time of the judges. So as we continue forward, we read that, that Elimelech, Naomi, Malon, and Chilion, that they were Ephrathites from Bethlehem and Judah. And I think this is where I'm going to pause for a second and talk about kind of the overarching um, message or idea of the book of Ruth. So uh, as we begin to notice uh, the main focus of the book of Ruth in its entirety, uh, we must notice how the author is building to that point. So, uh, as we flip to the back of Ruth, the very last few verses of Ruth, the fourth chapter, Ruth chapter 4. I'll read the last couple verses, starting with 18. So it says, Now these are the generations of Perez. Perez fathered Hezron. Hezron fathered Ram. 
Ram fathered Aminadab, Aminadab fathered Nashon, Nashon fathered Salmon, Salmon fathered Boaz, Boaz fathered Obed, Obed fathered Jesse, and Jesse fathered David. So um, as, we're, as we read further in the, in the book of Ruth, we see that, that Naomi ends up having um, a child with Boaz, ends up getting married to Boaz, and has a child with him, and that child is Obed. So, and then we read again there in verse 22 that Obed fathered Jesse, and Jesse fathered David. So we're pointing forward, looking forward to the coming of, of the king. At the end of Judges, there was no king in the land. Everyone did what was right in their own eyes. And now we're looking forward to a king, a king who would come and, and rule at least for a time and, and bring temporary peace um, and, and would bring uh, a true worship of God back to the land. And again, we know that, that King David was, was only a man. He wasn't perfect, and, and that's where we look forward to, to the future um, king of the Davidic line, our Savior, Jesus Christ. And we'll talk about that here in a bit. But I think the main purpose of the book of Ruth is to show us that despite um, the unfaithfulness of the people, despite things not being what they ought to be, we still see God's sovereignty in bringing about uh, his purposes through, through the birth of Obed, and then through him, Jesse, and then finally through David, the king who, who would at least for a time set, thing, set things right in Israel, um, looking forward to that final Davidic king who is Christ. So how does that tie in with, with what we just talked about, that they were Ephrathites from Bethlehem? So we see that they were Ephrathites. There was two cities uh, in Israel named Bethlehem. So Ephrathites, the fact that it says they were Ephrathites points us to the fact that it is the same Bethlehem that, that is where um, David was from and Christ was from. So just briefly reading from 1 Samuel chapter 17, verse 12 tells us, 1 Samuel 17, verse 12, says, Now David was the son of an Ephrathite of Bethlehem in Judah, named Jesse, who had eight sons. In the days of Saul, the man was already old and advanced in years. So we see that David was an Ephrathite. So um, this book was written, again, we already have the, the genealogy of David, so we know that this book was written, Ruth was written, when David had already been born, had already been, become king. But the fact that this little Ephrathites points us to, hey, we're, we're talking about the kingly line here. We're talking about the same people that David would come from. And then as we read uh, in, the, in, in the prophecy of, of Micah, Micah chapter 5 verse 2 tells us that, But you, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient of days. So we see... Uh, from Bethlehem, Ephrathah, they include that, the Ephrathah, the Ephrathites, as we've been talking about, that there's going to come one who is going to be the ruler of Israel, who's, uh, who is of old, who is the ancient of days. So when we, when we see that they're Ephrathites, we, we should think, oh, we're talking about the Davidic line. And then later on, through the prophecy, we see, okay, we're connecting, now we're connecting that to the one who is to come, Christ, connecting him back to the Davidic line. So we're kind of both ways pointing back to David, that Christ, we're looking, that, that David being an Ephrathite um, shows us that, that we're looking forward towards Christ and that Ruth, and, or Naomi, excuse me, being an Ephrathite and Elimelech and their family being an Ephrathite points us towards David. So just a, an important point to note there. Okay, going on. So then they went into the country of Moab and remained there. But Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died and she was left without her two sons. So we've already seen... Tragedy upon tragedy upon tragedy. So the period of the judges was a time of, of, of tragedy for Israel. There was a famine in the land, which was a tragic, um, a tragic fate for, for the promised land. And then we see um, God's people going into foreign pagan lands, which is tragic. And now we see 
uh, the tragedy of, of Naomi becoming widowed, that she was now without her husband. And then it says, let's see, then we'll continue on. And, but, and she was left with her two sons. They took Moabite wives. The name of the one was Orpah and the name of the other Ruth. They lived there about 10 years and both Malon and Chilion died. The woman was left without her two sons and her husband. So um, this is another part where we see um, the scripture doesn't give us an explicit condemnation against Malon and Chilion's actions. Um, but yet we still see that their marrying of, of Moabite women was more than likely an unwise choice. And again, we're moving in the wrong direction. We're not doing the things that we ought to do. Um, the scripture through the law does um, seem to have some pretty strong words against uh, intermarrying with the pagan nations. Deuteronomy chapter 7 uh, tells us that um, Deuteronomy chapter 7 starting in verse 2 says, When the Lord your God gives them over to you and you defeat them, then you must devote them to complete destruction. You shall make no covenant with them and show no mercy to them. You shall not intermarry with them, giving your daughters to their sons and taking their daughters for your sons, for they will turn away your sons from following me to serve other gods. And the anger of the Lord would be kindled against you and he would destroy you quickly. So um, before that, it gives a list of, of the different nations that they're talking about. It doesn't explicitly spell out the Moabites um, in that list, but at the same time, it seems as though um, intermarrying with any of the pagan nations would be something unbecoming of God's covenant people. Um, and just to kind of get another idea of exactly um, the way that the Lord felt towards um, the Moabites, it says in, in Deuteronomy chapter 23, verse 3, it says, No Ammonite or Moabite may enter into the assembly of the Lord, even to the 10th generation. None of them may enter the assembly of the Lord forever. So again, Moabites are not, um, not someone that you would think through reading the scripture that, that the people of God should, should be hitching their wagon to, not someone that they should be marrying, making covenants with, or, or being associated with in, in many different ways. But we see them, but that's what we see. Again, in some ways, um, the scripture doesn't explicitly tell us whether this was sin, whether this was wrong, or even that it was um, God's condemnation that he killed um, Malon and Chilion because of that. But we also see that, again, we're, we're moving in the wrong direction. Things are not as they ought to be. So then we read, as we go on, both Malon and Chilion died, so the woman was left without her two sons so, and her husband. So Naomi is completely emptied of what she had. As an Israelite widow with no sons, she was unprotected and faced destitution, poverty, and perhaps even enslavement. She was a widow in a foreign land with two foreign daughters-in-law. Um, she was unprotected. She faced um, poverty, destitution, uh, the, uh, the Bible background commentary says widows in the ancient Near East had lost all social status and generally were also without political or economic status. They would equate to the homeless in our American society. Typically, they had no male protector and were therefore economically dependent on society at large. So we see here that, that Naomi is really in, in, a, in a difficult spot. There's really the, this, this story where it just seems to get darker and darker and darker with every step that we take. Uh, we see finally that Naomi is, is emptied of everything that she had. She has nothing left. Um, she is a widow in a foreign land. She has no, no social status. She has no political or economic status. She, uh, as, as the Bible background commentary said, she'd be like if, uh, a homeless person in our American society. Um, she, was, she was in dire straits. Um, so let's go through just this next verse here. Um, so we have this, this, this backdrop of, of intense darkness, uh, of things not being the way that they should be, of tragedy upon tragedy. Um, but then we read, finally, uh, a, a word of hope. 
We'll end here in verse 6. It says, Then she arose with her daughters-in-law to return from the country of Moab, for she had heard in the fields of Moab that the Lord had visited his people and given them food. So the famine is over. There's, now, there's food again in the land of Israel. Uh, we get our first sign of good news, uh, and I think most importantly we see God's faithfulness, that even through the, the darkness um, and tragedy that we see in these first five verses of Ruth, that, that God is still in the picture, that God is still faithful towards his people. Uh, and we're going to see God's providence, you see God's providence uh, upon everything in the book of Ruth, especially as we go forward. Um, but especially here, we get, our first, we get our first glimmer of hope, that things may be moving in the right direction, that there may be hope for Naomi yet, uh, despite her difficult uh, and trying circumstances. Uh, and they decide to return. So uh, this word return is used 12 different times in this first chapter. Um, and it's used broadly in the Old Testament to signify uh, both God's returning to his people and his people returning to God. Just a couple of quick verses. Um, Hosea chapter 3, verse 5 says, Afterward the children of Israel shall return. It's the same word there, return. And seek the Lord their God and David their king, and they shall come in fear to the Lord and to his goodness in the latter days. Hosea chapter 6, verse 1 says, Come, let us return to the Lord, for he has torn us, that he may heal us. He has struck us down, and he will bind us up. So um, we see here in, in verse 6 that they're, that they're going to return from the country of Moab, so that they're, they're turning. And, and again, that word, it can signify that they are simply just returning, that they're just making the trek, uh, the 40 or 50 mile journey back to, to Bethlehem from Moab. But we can also see this as, as having a greater significance of, of them returning, returning back to, back to Yahweh, back to the land that, um, that they had been gone from so long. Uh, if we remember at the beginning, it said that they went to sojourn, and it says that they remained there, and then later it says that after Elimelech died, uh, that they were there for, for 10 years. So it had been 10 years since she had been uh, in her homeland, Naomi, um, and, and now she is planning to return there. The famine is over, uh, and she's preparing to return to her home. <clears throat> so uh, there's so much more we could say about uh, the book of Ruth, uh, so many important things that, that I wish we could have gotten through this morning. But, um, but I think what I want us to focus on and think about this morning is, is just to see God's sovereignty and God's faithfulness, that even despite uh, the evil, uh, the moral relativism, just the complete state of chaos um, that Israel was in in the period of the judges, that even in that period God was still working for the good of his people, that even in Naomi's um, tragic life uh, through, the, through the death of her sons, through the death of her husband, through the fact that she was in a, in a pagan foreign land, uh, the fact that she had experienced famine, all of these things <clears throat> uh, were tragic, that they were that they were not the way that things should be, that, that Naomi was, was in dire straits, that her life was, was empty. She had nothing left. And yet, we see that God is faithful to her. Uh, and, and again, we see later on, uh, we read at the beginning when we read through the whole chapter, that Naomi clings to her, Naomi goes with her back into the land, um, that God is faithful to her to, to at the end, as we read, um, bring forth through, through Ruth, um, Obed, and through Obed, Jesse, and through Jesse, David. So even when it seems like we've taken every wrong step, even when it seems that every one of our plans has been thwarted, it can seem as though God's plan has been thwarted and forgotten, even in the backdrop of, of grave and heinous sin from either ourselves or from others, uh, we, should have, we should have and can have complete and total confidence uh, that God is still faithful towards his people, and though he may not make all things right in this life, we know that through Christ he will make all things new, that his plan will come to pass, and that all things will work together for the good of those who love him. Um, 
So we shouldn't read this book and, and understand just God's faithfulness towards, towards Naomi, though he is. Uh, we should see God's faithfulness both corporately and individually, that he was faithful towards Naomi. Um, Despite her own trials, despite her own suffering, he was faithful towards Naomi. Uh, and that despite Israel's evil and sinfulness in the book of, of Judges and through this period of their history, that he was still faithful towards them by bringing the Davidic, by bringing David and then finally bringing the, the final Davidic king, um, Christ. I like, uh, too, Dale Ralph Davis says, We simply don't know enough ever to despair intelligently and completely over our seemingly senseless troubles. So even when it seems as though our troubles and our trials are, are senseless, um, and even though it seems like we may be completely empty and have nothing left, we don't ever know enough to despair over that completely. Um, we never know what God is going to do. So I, I hope, um, as we see just the complete and total emptiness of Naomi through these first couple verses, and then the, then the hope that the famine is over and that things are starting to um, things are starting to to go back to the way that they ought to be. There's food in the land. There's food in in the house of bread, Bethlehem, and that. God's people are, are returning to, to the promised land. Naomi is returning to the promised land that, uh, that God is still faithful to his people despite what, what circumstances may look like. And again, we know that uh, we see the, the coming of the Davidic king um, through King David, that there was no king in the land and that God is going to bring a king who, who, set thing, who will set things right for a time. And we look forward to, to the coming of, of our Lord Jesus Christ who, who will set things right for eternity um, when he comes to, to take his people with him. Let us pray. Lord God, thank you for your word. Thank you for the truth that is found in your word, Lord. I pray that your word would go forth with power this morning. Uh, I pray that as we read through, as we've read through this beginning part of the book of Ruth, that even in, in the darkest hour, even when all things seem to be going wrong, even when it feels as though our life is burdened by tragedy after tragedy, death after death, sin after sin, difficulty after difficulty, dark night after dark night, Lord, that we can trust you and know that, that you are still faithful towards your people, that even when things don't seem to be moving in the direction that they ought, even when it seems as though um, we are fleeing from you or our, our loved ones are fleeing from you or uh, the people around us are fleeing from you, Lord, that we know that you will ultimately set things right, Lord, uh, that we see your faithfulness towards your people uh, corporately, towards your people Israel, despite their continued unfaithfulness to you, uh, and we see your faithfulness towards Naomi, even in, in the most difficult situation that she, that she experienced, Lord, that is unimaginably difficult. Um, Lord, help us to have confidence in you this morning that even in our trials and temptations, that you are faithful and that you will truly work all things to the good of those who love you. Um, Lord, again, thank you for this time that we get to worship you this morning. We ask all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.